Welcome everybody to the Brown Taboo Project. We are back here for episode four and we're so excited to have a kick-ass guest today. Someone that I personally have been fangirling about for quite a while, so I'm super excited to be sharing airtime with this lovely person. I'm Sri, back at you for, for this next iteration. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. Hi everyone, I'm Finish, coming at you from my last week in sunny San Diego. Uh, my pronouns are he, him, and his. And my name is Sonali Rashidwar, and I use she and they pronouns. And I am so, so happy to be here today. Yeah. We're so happy to have you. <laughs> ah. It's exciting to have you around, especially because, so what we're trying to have this episode in particular focus on is gender identity and gender expression. Um, but as with like every other identity that we have, those things are so intertwined with sexual orientation, with our racial and our ethnic identities, with our upbringing, all of that. So it's just exciting to be able to have someone who has so much both professional as well as personal knowledge on these topics. So thanks for joining us. Thank you again so much for having me. Yeah. Um, okay, so I guess to kick off. So actually, yeah, let's let's start by just pronouns because let's make sure that we're being respectful here and respecting your pronouns. So you said that you like to use she and they pronouns. So is that for you um, interchangeable? Are you down with having 50-50 usage? Do you have a slight preference for one over the other? Totally. So I identify as non-binary and I use both she and they pronouns. I thought about he. Um, I think about it sometimes, but I don't know if I'm going to add that yet to the mix. Probably never, but always thinking through it and checking in with myself. Mm -hmm. But I love using them interchangeably. I first learned a few years ago that we could have more than one pronoun at a time. And it was actually at a South Asian camp that I helped to organize called East Coast Solidarity Summer. And an older organizer mentor of mine, Mithali Thakur, they also used she and they pronouns and it blew my mind. I was like, yeah, I'm thinking through gender too. And using two pronouns really communicates that effectively that I'm exploring and thinking through gender. So even now when I talk with friends who use more than one pronoun, I try to intentionally use them interchangeably. If, if not 50, 50, at least I'm, I'm trying to mix it in and not try to have one preference over the other. And I also pay special attention to when my friends change the order that they'll say which pronouns they use are in. So some folks will say, I use she and they pronouns. And I really take note when they suddenly say, I use they and she pronouns. And I'm like, okay, so maybe you're designated to me that there's a preference. Mm -hmm. Word up. Okay. And I guess I was coming back to this piece of just asking, right? I feel like when people get so tripped up over about pronouns I think the one piece that always kind of makes me giggle is forgetting that you can just like ask the person Um, (laughs) and I mean there's like an amount of potential not wanting to to burden the person themselves and be like having to explain themselves every three seconds but that the most respectful way to interact with any human being is just to be like yo what's your story what's your deal like what do you personally prefer so thanks for sharing that with us. Um, oh my gosh, thanks for asking. Yeah. And then, so you said that you identify as non-binary. Can you tell folks about that a little bit? 
So to me, non-binary means something in between, something that is neither, something that can feel like both, but either way, it's super fluid. And it really respects and honors the way that I don't feel like a cis woman might feel. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like the way that my body presents and looks as a super fat person is traditionally feminine Mm -hmm. because I'm also not treated as traditionally feminine. And for me, non-binary is directly reflective of the ways that my body is treated and how I was raised to not think of gender as limiting and think of it as this really larger exploration of what it is that my body is meant to do and be seen as. So non-binary is actually feels like liberatory. It feels like uh, an all access pass. That sounds, um, I think that's a really interesting sentiment that, like, is new to me also. Um, you know, I'm also still learning about this, but I think the intersection of kind of, like, body things, you know, uh, body image, like, how you look, how you present, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, how that kind of goes into this, like, gender non-binary, I think that was a really cool explanation. Thanks. And I guess part of that, too, and I think this is, like, one of the things that folks generally struggle with is the piece between my gender identity and my gender expression. And I think those Mm. things so often get clumped together when they're kind of, when people are like rolling through identity categories, do you know what I mean? Um, But really taking the time to understand the nuances of those two and that they're not at all the same thing um, that, people are actually have the opportunity to have a gender identity that perhaps does and perhaps does not, or on different days interacts in different ways with their gender expression. So I'm curious for you Mm -hmm. how that kind of has played out and like the ways that you were talking about being traditionally feminine um, or the way that your body may or may not be perceived that way. So how's that, how's that played out for you in terms of your gender identity? I came into understanding that I wanted to be seen more masculine in attending grad school and finishing grad school. So in the program that I went to, I received a master's in social work and a master's in human sexuality education. And I went to Widener University to get that education in case anyone's curious or interested. <laughs> Quick little plug. <laughs> um, I, do not, I do not receive advertising money for saying that. <laughs> But that is where I went to learn about and explore and excavate my issues in order to be able to deal with others while working through therapy, while offering my clinical services and expertise. So social work school forced me to have to deal with my unexcavated shit. Mm. And so it was in one course that I had to, we had to do this activity that involved an actually super transphobic activity that involved having um, like pink stickers and blue stickers. And what we had to do was all the students would move through the room and it was like a timed activity, like within two minutes, uh, move through the room and on every student on their back in a place that they couldn't see, 
put either a pink sticker or a blue sticker or a combination of the two to symbolize the genders that you think are being that you are perceiving from that student Mm -hmm. so so kind of transphobic Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh kind of uh, limiting in its understanding of a gender binary that there are really only two options Mm -hmm. Uh, i guess you can put them together they're they're like you know you can make your own little like purple i guess and there are quite a few overlaps (laughs) but in this activity after the the sticker part was completed uh, we as students got a chance to sit down before we got to look and see what stickers we received mm-hmm. from other students. We had to sit and think about, you know, what do you hope to see? What do you wish you would see? What are you worried you might see on your back? And what does that mean? And that was the, for the first time that I sat and thought to myself, oh shit, I really want like more blues on my back than pinks. Oh. And I, yeah, exactly. I had this like eureka moment mm-hmm. where i was like what am i betraying my gender mm-hmm. like i have gender never trigger. thought of myself yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like i'm like betraying all of my feminist values mm-hmm. that i have mm-hmm. been taught that I, sh- I should want to avoid masculinity and any aspiration towards masculinity is like pathology mm-hmm. like this is some of like the baseline queer feminism that i grew up in in undergrad and it was super insightful and ever since then I've been honoring that this is a part of my identity that I have been rejecting that I have been suppressing and the more that I acknowledge and respect that it is a part of my identity that exists the more that I interrogate the ways that I feel that I access that masculinity within myself Mm -hmm. the way that I feel like I am performing masculinity Mm -hmm. in ways that feel good to me are all ways that I'm playing with gender in ways that feel healthy and good and not ways that I feel like I have to suppress or pretend like it's not there or feel like I'm betraying an entire gender or movement. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's actually interesting that you say that because I was recently having a conversation with a friend of mine who she's a cis woman herself and she has recently entered a space where she was interacting with a lot more just in general trans and gender non-conforming people. Um, and was kind of struggling and she was like I her where she was at was she was like I personally I I get being trans that I'm down with in terms of like within this still like limiting gender binary way right of like transitioning from one side to the other check I'm with you I'll use your pronouns got it but she was like I gotta say like I'm sorry if I sound like a bitch but like it's hard for me to understand why someone would who kind of coming back to this piece of like the male is bad masculinity has its evils there's there's the way that um, men are socialized is not necessarily for a lot of different reasons healthy or respectful um and so i don't understand why someone would would who is born female would want to identify more on the masculine side like, I don't, I feel like that's betraying our gender. And it was, it was so interesting because I was like, there's, there, it was coming from this place of like, of trying to struggle through and trying to be more understanding, but in a very, like, in a still very binary understanding of what people are allowed to be. Yeah. That it's an either or. Mm-hmm. 
And that's what we need less of. Like we need less of good or bad, um, clean or dirty, mm-hmm. healthy or unhealthy. We need less of those things because what we find is that we actually, so many of us exist actually in between. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like when I look at statistics for LGBT folks, like as far as percentages go, like way more bi folks exist, mm-hmm. bisexual folks. Mm-hmm than lesbian and gay folks. So many more individuals exist in the in-between and it just makes sense to me why that would be the case. Because if you can't, if you can have both, then why not? Like I think of that uh, taco commercial with the little girl and she's like, soft tacos or hard tacos? (laughs) ¿Por qué no los dos? (laughs) Totally. Yeah, it's it's crazy how these binaries come up even in like, even when you think you're rejecting one binary, like, the the thing that comes to my head is, is like, this idea of, like, femme versus butch, which are both, oh. I think, like, in the realm of, like, you know, like, feminine identity, right? But that's, mm-hmm. but, like, you know, you get rid of one binary or, you like, you diversify one binary into, like, another binary. It's just, like, well, does that, like, yes, people have those identities but does it need to be one or the other or like why did I automatically think of that when I could have just taken it for what it is right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I grew up feeling like I could only pick one or the other and I've known I was queer since probably probably a long time but like been out and like saying it out loud to myself I would say since like college and even when I was in college, I had feelings like I think I am butch and I think that I am something that's not just femme. I would say this to the girl that I was crushing on and I I was dating at the time and she would laugh at me and she would say like, yeah, she would laugh at me and she would say, you are not butch. And she would like name 10 things about me that would make me feel like, why did I even say that? That was stupid of me. Mm. But it took me years to be like, this is the same shitty person who told me bisexuality wasn't real. Ah. So I actually don't have to believe her. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's the bullet there. (laughs) I hope she never listens to this Uh. podcast. (laughs) I gotta say, though, it's like ridiculous how... And this is this is a, a thing that I think in general, like all types of social justice movements need to talk about more. And and I think this is where the negative stereotype of a social justice warrior comes from, is this piece of like the second that you have gained some amount of um, awareness, understanding, insight, like a new a, a new level of whatever um, to completely ignore everything that you've been through up until that point and to because you still know it internally for fuck's sake but like not being comfortable or willing to acknowledge those out loud the journey that you've had Mm. and that like so to come to this moment I had to I had to grow through these other things and it took you know like in that moment as I was dating this person there I was starting to puzzle through things about my queer identity about my gender identity that got shut Mm -hmm. down and whatever but then like 
I appreciate you just being like, yeah, so this is where I was at the time. And like, this is what I was thinking. And like, this person was poisoning me to think that I wasn't allowed to be butched or that this, that, that bisexuality doesn't exist, like whatever it might be, um, (laughs) that I didn't just pop out to like the Sonali that I am today. Yes. It took time for me to get here. (laughs) And like, and now I feel even like saying that I'm BEM. Like, I'm some combination of butch and femme. Mm-hmm. And I say bem intentionally rather than futch. <laughs> because some people like to say futch and, and butch, uh, sorry, femme and butch is like futch. Huh. But I think I like to lean a little more butch rather than femme. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That feels good to me. Yeah. Is that been, because I thought, I think last we chatted, you had identified yourself as a femme non-binary person. So has this been like a recent shift for you? Yeah, it has. Like, I would say within the last few months, I was like, why do I still only think that I can be femme? Mm-hmm. And just because I wear dresses to work, why does a dress have to be feminine? Mm-hmm. I am not moving through the world like I am only feminine. And saying that I'm femme is, doesn't, is not honoring the complexities that I feel inside. Mm-hmm. So BEM has been a recent identity or like label that you felt comfortable starting to to use yeah and I feel like when I use the word them I have to explain a little bit what it means because I don't think that it's as accessible of a term as butch or femme mm-hmm. yeah I've never heard of that before I don't know if you saw my look of right. like what <laughs> like them them is a little new Butch is a little new even these ideas that like combinations of the two can exist like high femme stone butch there's a gradient, right? <laughs> Even within feminine masculinities. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So that's the piece that I was curious about, though, in terms of like your personal, because it is for every single person, our own understandings of how gender expression and the ways, as you were like talking about performing gender, I find this so interesting, the, the mm. thought of... Um, performing or enacting any identity whether that's a south asian identity Mm. right like being a man Mm -hmm. being a young person being a student like whatever the thing is right there's rope there's uh, like roles we're supposed to have tropes stereotypes even right of what that thing is Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. but for you how much do you feel like gender identity and gender expression in your body go together versus things that are totally unrelated to one another or that change depending on the time and the space and gender always feels related to me because it's connected to how I think of myself what kinds of job roles I might take on um the position I have within my family when I think about sibling order or I think about the kind of caretaking that I do in my family, which feels like it feels fucking non-binary to me. Mm. Like I do a lot of emotional labor in my family in ways that I really enjoy. Mm -hmm. And I do a lot of physical caretaking in my family too, in ways that I also enjoy. And to me, those are ways that I access a lot of the ways that I feel masculine. The ways that I was taught as an eldest daughter of three siblings, the ways that I was raised to take care of my siblings, my family, 
as if I was a son, really helped me to queer the boundaries Mm -hmm. of what gender meant for me. So the things that I was limited in doing was very different from my sister, who is in a thinner, smaller body. Mm -hmm. And I've always been fat, and I've always been easily identified as a body that's too big or a body that's a little bit masculine. Uh, I didn't wear dresses until I was in an abusive relationship and kind of like forced into this gendered box again um, at towards the end of undergrad. So like it, maybe like my early 20s. Mm-hmm. I didn't wear dresses really until my early 20s because it wasn't something that was accessible to my body size. Uh, I had a really hard time looking for clothes that fit me when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. I would shop at like mom stores <laughs> when I was a teenager and middle schooler. Yeah. And the ways that I was taught to be a girl or, the, or to be the oldest girl mm-hmm. was super different than the ways that my sister was taught to be a girl. Like she was, she was very delicate and she was fragile and she was um, the one who would wear dresses and, you know, couldn't climb on stuff and mm-hmm. shouldn't be carrying heavy boxes and shouldn't be helping dad in the yard and um, should be like, you know, sitting and uh, helping get tea or get water for everybody and uh, just helping in different ways that than I was expected to. And to me, that allowed me in in my own brain, it it made me feel like there were things that I could do in the world as a teenager that maybe I shouldn't have been doing, (laughs) but but I was doing. So things like, (laughs) Like, (laughs) things that you might expect like teenage boys to be doing, right? Like (laughs) um, exploring my sexuality, um, stealing my parents' car and like taking it out. In the, at night, <laughs> sneaking out of the house, um, crashing uh, it, having the cops show up at your door, just, all that. No, okay. just doing like risky, <laughs> <laughs> risky, not really like obedient Indian mm-hmm. daughter things, mm-hmm. or traditional Indian daughter. I shouldn't say that no Indian daughters do this shit because so many of us do, <laughs> right? Right, especially <laughs> eldest daughters, especially. There's something about sibling order that really queers gender in South Asian families. And I don't see it as much in white families Mm. or American families. But you were going to say something. No, I'm just kind of thinking through it. And and Drenish, I'm actually kind of curious to hear on your end. I don't know. I mean, we're going to talk about Danya when she's not here. Hi, Danya. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But yeah. Sorry, Danya. I'm like curious how that does or doesn't resonate for you because I was also trying to like puzzle so I'm 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 the younger of two girls um but I feel like for a lot of different reasons my sister and I don't follow what is traditional um in general for like birth order studies which have like limited validity in general but um for birth (laughs) order things total but then also like the elder daughter kind of piece um, but it sounds like Sonali, you have one brother at least, or are you all three? I do. Okay. Baby brother and my middle child is a sister. Gotcha. And mm-hmm. then, yeah. So I'm curious, like how that might be different for, um, families where there are female and male children versus having like two girls. 
Um, it's an interesting question. I'm trying to think about like me and my older sister Tanya. So, so she is significantly older than me. She is uh, seven years older than me, and so from a young age, there was definitely this idea of like if my parents ever needed to, my sister could take care of me. Mm-hmm. Um, which I guess you could say is a more traditionally feminine role. Um, that being said, also, uh, now that I think about it, like as I was growing up, my sister was definitely the one to help out my dad with a lot of things that maybe are more masculine, like you were, like you mentioned, the yard um, and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the difference in the way that maybe me and my sister were treated growing up is a little bit more like the reason for that has more to do with the fact that she's older and I'm mm-hmm. younger um, than necessarily the fact that uh, she's a girl and I'm a guy granted like that's definitely there like don't get me wrong I've definitely had more privilege as, as, as a man um, and the more I get older the more that comes into light but it's a very interesting way to think about it could you actually, I did have a question. Could you kind of explain what you meant by queer as a verb? Uh, like, what does that kind of mean to you and in this context? To me, it feels like when we use queer as a verb, it's almost like the straight piece of yarn that we're holding so taut. When we, like, let it go, it becomes this, like, vibration. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what it feels like to me, that when we let go of the rigidity, that it queers our understandings and the confines of what it is that we can exist within. And we have this like more limitless option. Like I often talk about it when I think about the way that fat has this queering effect on the body. Mm -hmm. So like fat messes with gender Mm -hmm. in ways that can feel non-consensual to a lot of folks. So like fat on my feminine body, on my feminine presenting body can masculinize me mm. in ways that I haven't totally consented to. So I don't get treated like a polite, demure, delicate woman when I move through the world because of my fat. Fat on a masculine presenting body can feminize that body in ways that like a cis man might not want to be feminized. Like if you think about a cis man with what's considered uh, man boobs mm-hmm. or like hips, those are considered feminine things and fat on a non-binary body can almost neutralize the effect of being neutral Mm -hmm. where you end up getting pushed on one side or the other because of the fat and that is often why we see so many eating disorders uh, happening with folks who are either transitioning or are existing somewhere within the non-binary umbrella Mm -hmm. because Either they are transitioning to what they would be considering as an ideal gendered body mm-hmm. and they're moving towards an ideal and that ideal looks a really specific way. And so to them, an eating disorder is the way that we get to that really specific, lanky, thin, androgynous look. Mm-hmm. And there is no other way to be androgynous other than being thin. Totally. Ugh. And that's yeah. that, right? That's that narrow understanding of what gender and body size how they interact Mm -hmm. it's yeah it's definitely like when you think about I think about like modeling a lot and how that's one of the spaces where androgyny has 
for a long time been much more acceptable because it's like this piece of a person who is so beautiful and you can't necessarily tell what gender they are and the clothes look so good on them regardless of what gender clothing they're modeling or whatever space they're supposed to be in and how that's used as a tool really to be like this shit looks so good that it doesn't even matter if it's a man or a woman wearing these pair of pants it just looks awesome on them um but you at at least in like my experiences i don't think like trying to like rack through a mental catalog but i don't know that i've ever seen a fat androgynous model you see lots of waif like sickly thin androgynous models but not not really anyone who could even be considered plus size plus size in the model sense let alone fat let alone have any type of mm-hmm. curvature and still have an androgynous look that's commercialized at least mm-hmm. And that's what a lot of non-binary folks struggle with, is that there's this idea that that is the only way to really look androgynous. Mm -hmm. And so if I have fat on my body, it's going to queer my body in ways that I'm not consenting to. And so that means that I have to engage in disordered eating in order to look the gender that feels right to me. Even though there are so many fat, androgynous, fat, non-binary, fat, gender non-conforming folks, and only through visually accessing those images are we able to adjust the narrow visuals that we've been given in the the past. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So like we can adjust what our brain understands as normal Mm -hmm. by adjusting the images that we consume. It's called visual diet. So first it's like we have to be aware of what are all the bodies that we're visually consuming through like print media, magazines, advertisements, the movies we watch, the TV shows we watch, and... The friends you have, the people you interact with. Yes, the people in your life, absolutely. And if there are people, if I am having a hard time accepting my body because I'm not seeing it represented in the media that I'm consuming, in the people that I'm exposed to, then that means that I might have to add those types of bodies into my visual diet. Mm -hmm. So that I can fit into what exists as normal. Because if I exist, that's normal. That's it. I don't need to have it written in a study and published. Right? (laughs) It's it's so crazy to think about. Like, there's so many layers to this. There's how you feel inside. There's how you want to present. And then Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there's how you are perceived. Mm -hmm. Right? There's just so many different levels Mm. that... um, that interact and that I guess also in a sense they like provide opportunities for people to have trouble with this right um yes both the people who are experiencing it and then for others to kind of understand this whole concept because it is so complex and there are so many layers to it you have so many different gazes going on and I like for us to be able to trouble those structures like if a structure or a system or an understanding or a thought belief attitude is not working for us then yeah let's trouble it and let's break it down deconstruct it because only in taking it apart are we going to end up with something that actually works for us and feels representative of, of what what's going on inside mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
I, I'm also just like, my brain kind of fits to drag a little bit also. Um, I mean, drag I know is like, in a large sense, it's like a performance art. Um, but it's also kind of like interesting of, you know, like drag is meant to like gender bend, but then a lot of people see drag as like, oh, it's a man dressing up as being like a hyper feminine woman. And that's the only kind of drag that's like, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, it's just something very interesting to mull over. I'm kind of processing it all right now. And it speaks back to that binary piece, right? Of like, these are mm. the options. And so even as we're starting to queer the options, but it's still like a very narrow scope of directionality. Like it must be a straight arrow from right. this side to that side and back. And then like once it's daytime and you're out of your drag, you're back to being a gay cis man that's like the only person who's allowed to perform drag right like mm-hmm. the the ways in which even something that is more understood to be a gender bending thing is still so not bendy mm-hmm. <laughs> the way that it yeah. usually is at least like there are definitely amazing... it's not bendy in all the directions it could right. be right there's exactly. i mean there's so many folks who are absolutely doing amazing work in drag in different performance spaces that are starting to make that a little bit more public but it is still back to this piece of like the the normal and what is like typically consumed or typically um within the the realm of acceptability mm-hmm. mm. and like you know why is something considered quote-unquote high drag um and then you know that because that almost makes me think that everything else is like low drag why does it have mm-hmm. to be low <laughs> Yeah, whenever we hierarchy anything, um, is that actually benefiting those who don't fit into the qualification of high drag? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can y'all, I've never heard of this, can y'all explain this high drag piece to me? Super feminine drag is, I mean, I might not be hitting the terms like exactly, but like one good example is like RuPaul's Drag Race, which is mm-hmm. the drag really like more mainstream, mainstream within the queer yeah. community, right? Uh, more well known and like there's this there's lots of actually like controversy going on because like RuPaul and the show look for people who look very feminine in their drag Mm -hmm. or if they look Mm -hmm. androgynous it's like a very particular kind of Of androgyny yeah yeah. um and like you know why are there for example no drag kings lots of drag queens wear beards Mm -hmm. but like why are there no drag queens that do that etc etc so it's just kind mm-hmm. of like yeah it's this exact thing that we were talking about about how the arrows are not pointing in all the directions that they could be and some arrows are seen as better than others um and like you know i'm all for like bringing drag into like other spaces for example right that's i don't think it's a bad thing but when you commercialize something so heavily people can get the wrong idea and get stuck back again into like another binary word thank you for that i appreciate you educating me um, um i had a question can i yes go ahead <laughs> um this was a kind of like brain picking question um for both of you as well as any listeners or whoever i don't know tell me what you think um there's been an ongoing debate that I have been hearing for many years, I'll say, but I recently, I was camping with a friend and was 
having this conversation again about folks who identify as straight, who identify as cis and hetero, but may want to use the term queer. Now, I know I have my opinions about this, but interesting. I was curious about what y'all thought. So going back to this piece of like queer as a verb and queering your experience or like basically being a person who is not necessarily who doesn't do things that are necessarily within a very like cis or hetero normative way but at the end of the day those are their identities that they prescribe and so and so I'll give an example and I'm actually curious to hear it's just like um what the update on this has been but I know that when I was at the University of Maryland and we were doing pride month stuff we had these all different shirts that like were different variations of like whatever the theme was of the year like queer and whatever um or whatever the like uh, I had have one shirt that has all these different identities I had one that I really like that has queer in a blank space and you can just write it in um which I had a lot of fun with that one but um there was an ongoing debate of like by having a shirt that says queer right on it if you are an ally and want to demonstrate your allyship during pride month by having one of these shirts is it appropriate to have a shirt as a hetero person that says that you write in like queer and allied i'm making a face (laughs) (laughs) and it's a face like i just ate some sour cream that went bad It's not a nice face. That I also personally make, but I'm curious. So my first, yeah, definitely. So I mean, obviously, Thernish, you want to answer the question about UMD. I'm just gonna say that I will never gatekeep. So this podcast might be like for folks who are listening to this and are South Asian and might be questioning or might even have like a hint of attraction towards something that feels like same gender or feels like something bigger than what we have been traditionally taught is accessible and allowed. I will never tell you that you should not wear a shirt that feels like I'm kind of touching the boundary of what's allowed. And to me, that's all that's accessible. And to me that honors that I might, I might be questioning or I might even have the hint of a taste that questioning is on my horizon. To me, I always want to make space for that ability to, I, to the ability for the box to be obliterated and for you to not exist within the confines of a narrow box. I'll never gatekeep and say that's not okay. Also, like people who look like they're in hetero relationships could be bisexual, could be pan, could be ace, could be kinky, could be poly. Like no one really knows and no one should be asking for anyone's like ID badge mm-hmm. when we're at Pride. Mm-hmm. Um but allies do not need badges that say ally. Right. Like, if you're an ally, like, awesome. Send your money. Uh, be it. Oh, be a be an ally. <laughs> you don't need to wear a badge that says, "Hey, I'm ready for my cookie now for being an ally." Um, just be the ally that you are. The fantastic, wonderful ally. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so as far as UMG goes, I haven't seen those shirts in a while um, around <laughs> campus. So... I'm dating myself. Good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I also haven't been on campus for like a very long time now. Um, so I I can give you an update on that when I get back. <laughs> um, but I guess, um, yeah, I'm also, I don't know, queer and allied. So this goes back to this whole question of like, you know, it's an all used queer as a verb. Mm-hmm. Um, the way I would use the word queer and just my personal experiences, or at least the way I have used it in the past, let me put it that way, has been, you know, like not cis or not straight or kind of like just like away from the... The norm. Yes, yes, away from the yeah. norm. And in that usage... Um, I wouldn't want someone who is the norm to be, or like who does subscribe to the norm to be using it. But then again, like, you know, why this terminology is just, at the end of the day, it's terminology mm-hmm. um, that we all agree on. It can change. And mm-hmm. um, I like that you're thinking more about like, you know, like who, why do we need a box? Who do we, like, what, what is this box? And things like that. So I <laughs> Yeah, it's a very interesting perspective. Um, yeah, I'm having a lot of like thoughts right now. So if I'm just kind of like bumbling along when I speak, <laughs> it's just because like I'm like processing. Processing, yeah, totally. Yeah. You you're mentioning really good concepts because this is a process that it's often called like gentrifying an idea, where someone is like, yes, I might also want to instead of acknowledging or analyzing the ways that I benefit from the privilege of not being queer and being able to move through the world in the ways that I feel not burdened by my cisgender heterosexual privilege. Mm -hmm. That instead of excavating a lot of those ideas and values and beliefs and the ways that I'm treated so nicely, instead of looking through those feelings, instead I want to like gentrify this idea that I can be queer too that feels like a bit of an escape it feels like a bit of avoidance and if you might be someone who's doing that um you know take take a seat and you know think through think through why that might be happening yeah like what is what when were you taught as a child that it was not okay to be responsible or accountable for your actions and when were you taught that you were allowed to move through the world? Like, I'm entitled to my opinion and belief, and it's not going to harm anybody. When were you treated like that was okay? Because it's not cool. Mm-hmm. Word. I, yeah, I think I, I, my, the sour cream face that you're mentioning, I, that is also <laughs> how I feel about it. Um, an interesting thing, too, about, like, specifically the write-in one where it's queer and blank and then can put what you want, which I, just to put it out there for mine, put queer and multidimensional. That's what I chose to write in. Um, but the thing about the writing queer and allied is, like, you could be a queer person and hopefully actually should or would be um, a queer person who is also allied to your to your own identity and to other identities and i think to that piece there's like a that's where i can see red and queer and allied being okay but if you're really like 
hetero and allied, <laughs> I it feels icky to me, especially because of the history of queer in general and that being a reclamation and it going back to this piece of like, when is it appropriate to use a word that has history, that has various, that has disgrace associated with it, at least in one point in time, um, and often usually still in the present too. And like, what are, what is the, the power and the agency that people really end up um, signifying in by by reclaiming terms like that? And so, and coming back to this piece of like, I am down with you being a person who is in with us for the fight and who like is also a person who is um, questioning what are gender roles or gender lines and like live live their lives in that way. But it's tricky though because it is also coming back to this piece of like whatever someone is internally then like this shirt, right? Like how much can that really represent of whatever their message or whatever is but anyway sorry we can come we can hop back off that it's an important question it's important it's an important personal question that someone should ask themselves before they are thinking to write the word ally on a shirt that says queer Mm -hmm. like why am i doing this am i am i gentrifying this movement am i colonizing this movement am i here to push it forward and to support the voices that already exist or am I here to occupy it and to become a voice that doesn't actually belong within this movement? And to make it easier, more palatable in whatever way and like within my conscription of how this is allowed to look or like what my role within it can be. Mm-hmm. Right. Because if I become an ally, then that means I'm part of the movement mm-hmm. and I don't have to do a lot of personal work to like <laughs> excavate and think about the ways that I'm complicit in hegemony or oppression. And that's wrong. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, we should always be doing both. Even those who are experiencing oppression have multiple privileges as well. I was raised in a middle upper class family. I didn't have to pay for my college or, or grad school. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm a U.S. citizen. I have documentation. I was, I have a U.S. passport. I have a U.S. accent. When I move to the world, I'm treated better than those with accents from other countries. I'm light skinned. I have never been called dark in my life. I have been considered someone who has quote unquote good skin and so I've never been given like unwarranted unsolicited skincare advice (laughs) by strangers on the train like I always have to be aware of like my Hindu privilege Mm -hmm. um, my mom's caste privilege Mm -hmm. I come from an intercaste family like there is never a time that I should not be aware of the ways that I am a settler colonist on this stolen land in the US Mm -hmm. and that I hold at the same time as my experiences of moving through questioning gender, moving through questioning sexual orientation, moving through the world as a fat, brown, woman-looking mm-hmm. person. <laughs> These exist at the same time, yeah, okay. and we don't have to only be oppressed to receive oppression points. This is not oppression Olympics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Like, I guess this entire... I guess a lot of this conversation that we had on, I guess, terminology, it's Mm -hmm. kind of the same conversation that we had on gender as well. There's what you mean inside, there's what you say, there's how other people perceive you, there's how society perceives you. Um, Same thing with gender. Um, It's just just so crazy to think about 
how much there is in the middle that maybe mm-hmm. you don't like or talk about on an average daily basis and that's yeah it's a shame and it's also kind of crazy to think about mm-hmm. i think it's, it's it's like a funny thing about binaries where i i feel like gender is actually really the one where we do this the most because with with most other identities it is rather normal or commonly accepted that there are more than just two options like when you're sometimes it can be very reductionist in the sense of like hetero or not um white or not right like college educated Mm. or not shit like that but there within i feel like normal day-to-day interactions or like the average person's understanding there are more options than black and white mm-hmm. and gender is like maybe in some ways one of the last frontiers of this but i think the example that is the most binary and interesting for that reason because it's like well if 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 the census can agree that we have at least seven categories for race and ethnicity. Like, I wonder (laughs) how long, which, you know, obviously so many more than that, but like, if most of the world has gotten to a point where at least that is okay, then like, I wonder how long it'll take to get to a point where like more than just two options for gender are also Mm -hmm. commonly understood or are okay or Mm -hmm. are available to check off if we're putting people into boxes and it's just like curious to me to think about why that is and even maybe from like an anthropological lens of why it is that we have as a society at least as a present like as a contemporary western society have so much more trouble with just like, oh, no, there's only two options, one or the other. If you're going to switch it, got, it has to be from this to that or that to this. It cannot be anything else in the middle. Something in between. And that's how I know that this is really a conversation about colonialism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, anytime we're ever talking about sexuality, gender, cultural norms, we need to always be connecting it back to things are the way they are now because someone made them this mm-hmm. way. And someone is really benefiting from it being this way. And so we have to think back to who created the system the way it is? What was it before this? And why or or how can we change it so that whoever is benefiting from this current system is no longer, that's no longer happening. So I think back to like an article that I read about how pre-colonialism within the U.S., there were more than five acknowledged genders mm-hmm. within many Native American tribes. Mm-hmm. And that's just like the handful of tribes that were named in that one article, Mm -hmm. more than five genders. And this tool of colonialism, this tool of white supremacy, gender was used as a tool. Mm -hmm. And it was used as a way to force native families into feeling like we are less than and white colonists are better than us because white colonists have come in and said, our religion is better, the way that we think about gender is better, the way that our families are structured are better, and everything that you do is uncivilized and savage. And that creates this hierarchy where one is more correct and one is less correct. 
And that is how colonization is able to happen when there is a hierarchy created and when one gets devalued. And we see that with body size where one type of body is seen as unhealthy, fat, and able to be dehumanized. Mm -hmm. And any mistreatment that is delivered to that fat body is deserved by that fat person. The same hierarchy exists with when we think about colonialism as well, with gender. Mm-hmm. And so what do you feel like, given, especially especially with, so not just the U.S. and colonization and genocide here in the U.S., but like especially coming from South Asian heritages and the even more recent and transparent colonization, right, that is very familiar really throughout the world, Um but I'm curious, like, what your experiences have been, Sonali, in terms of as you're confronting, like, interacting with different, your own Desi family or the South Asian community as a whole, or whether that's, like, second gen, third gen people, um, what do you feel like are the biggest barriers in our brown communities towards acceptance of Ooh. non-traditional, like, genders right like any type of trans or gender non-conforming identities it is the phrase log kya kehenge which means and translates to what will people think it is a very collectivist idea of whatever i am doing is a reflection of my family i am not moving through the world as an individual I move through the world as a representative of a collective, and I am a symbol of status and power mm-hmm. and wealth. I am not a child. I'm not a person. I am a symbol, and I have to do well, and if I don't, my family is tarnished. The The ability for my extended family to have good, suitable partners mm-hmm. to marry into gets tarnished. This idea of collectivist accountability that I don't live and I don't exist for my own happiness and that I don't get to move through the world in ways that make me feel comfortable, but in fact, I have to do a lot of performance for others. I feel like that is the biggest barrier between moving from where traditions end and what the next frontier is going to look and feel like. Because we actually are the ones who get to decide that. Because we are the ones who exist within the diaspora. And folks in South Asia get to make those decisions too. Because these conversations are being had over there too. And everywhere where diaspora exists. To me, that's the biggest barrier. It's this idea that, well, you don't get to make that decision as a kid. You have to do this thing because... There's a larger game being played here and you're just a chess piece. You're just a pawn. Those are are deep structures to combat with them. They are and they're not. Could you elaborate? Because (laughs) when I say they are and they're not, I mean... The easiest way to diminish a power structure is to remove the grip and control it has over us. So if someone were to say, well, you're not allowed to do that. And I would say, you know, well, who's 
who's going to come and take a gun to my head tomorrow if I, if I do that thing. And I should, I should announce that that's a privilege of mine. I don't have someone coming to me with a gun to my head. If I do a lot of these things, right. I talk about gender orientation. I talk about sex, my sexual orientation, even the work that I do with, uh, treating folks who experience sexual trauma. I talk about my own experience of sexual trauma. I'm like very open and honest and frank about what I've experienced and what I'm currently thinking through, but not everyone moves through the world with those luxuries, with those privileges. So for me, it, I move through the world as authentically as I can. I come out all the time to cousins and family as often as I can this is how I'm feeling today about this thing. This is how I'm feeling tomorrow about that thing. And when it changes, I'll let you know because mm-hmm. shit is fluid. And when I'm open and out about the ways that I feel fluid, I allow my cousins and my family members to feel fluid in themselves too. The conversations I have had with my mom, the open, frank, honest conversations I've had with my mom about sexuality and abuse in the last four years mm-hmm. have been mind boggling. And it comes from my ability to be soft and vulnerable. And the same thing comes with my cousins too. I'm the oldest cousin on my mom's side out of like 15 cousins. And every time that I come out or I, or I say small things like, oh yeah, I'm going on a date with this girl or, oh yeah, um, I use she and they pronouns sometimes too, allows my cousins to tell me things like, yeah, I've thought about same gender relationships too. And Cousins as young as like 14 have said things like that to me. And it is a beautiful thing to be that person in my family who feels like a safe place and a harbor. And any of us have that ability to do that with those that we feel safe Mm -hmm. and comfortable with. Comes back to the BEM piece. I feel like as you're you're talking (laughs) about the overall family structure, because especially within South Asian families, right, this piece of how uh, there is not a separate word, right, for your DD or your Paya or whatever. Like, it's your cousins and your siblings have the same terminology. And so, therefore, to put it into the context of not only are you the eldest of three, but the eldest of 15, at least on your mom's side, then, like, that is really powerful to think through the ways that we can change the patterns that we, um, and, and especially folks of the diaspora, um, as we're kind of in many ways making our claim in in new places and spaces and gaining visibility then like what is the kind of the legacy right that what is the foot that we're going to step forward with and and is it going it, it is up to us really to kind of think through um and and try to be very mindful and purposeful of like are we going to you know what are the pieces of the parents or culture that I'm coming from that I want to hold on to, that I cherish and I mm-hmm. value, what is it within the language, the custom, the religion, whatever, the food, let's talk about that, right? <laughs> that I want to hang on to. <laughs> and then what are the things within this host culture, the place where I'm expected to assimilate? Um, what do I want to bring in? And what are the things that I, I want to introduce? And, and how is it that I want myself my family my culture all of these things to be portrayed and that's a really exciting thing for us all of us really as a as a generation as a movement as a as a space time place in the diaspora to be like how are we gonna oh. do this y'all how are we gonna do this that's 
It's a beautiful and it's an important question because we have the opportunity and the blessing to ask ourselves, what are the values that I want to inherit and what are the ones that I don't want to inherit? And are there intergenerational patterns that I'm identifying of abuse, of neglect, of lack of affection, of, of conditional love that I don't want to be passing down to the next generation? And next generation doesn't even mean that I'm necessarily going to have kids. It also means, right, the individuals within my generation. Do I want my youngest cousin sibling to experience what I went through as a kid? No, I don't. And so I'm always going to combat this negative body image self-talk of, oh, I just want to lose 10 pounds. And I, I say, why? Your body is perfect and beautiful and exactly as it is. And you inherited this body from your mom, just like I inherited mine from my mom. And your body is supposed to look exactly as it does. It's an heirloom. These are our family heirlooms. Wow. That's a powerful statement. I love that. And it's, uh, gosh, it's a conversation we have in our family a lot because, so my older sister has a very different body type from what I do. And I have had the privilege to move through the world throughout my life, really, in a very thin, small body. And my sister is even shorter than me, but has always been much more thick and has had a, a really different way that she, that specifically, I will say her mom, has, you know, said things to her about like what she can wear, how she should look, that kind of thing versus the messages that I get. Um, and it has been this very interesting piece of like, well, Ma, I get my fat ass from you. <laughs> so like, you know what yeah. I mean? And, and, and I think it's, it's yeah, a blessing. So like, Thank you. The thing of like, but take, take the good from me and don't take the bad, you know? Right. Um, but like, it's not so simple necessarily to pick and choose what are the things that I do and don't like from what gets passed down to me. It all gets passed down to me. And yes, I have an amount of, of choice and restructuring and behavior and thought patterns that I have the responsibility to work through myself, but it is like the good and the bad all come. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, this is a part of our legacy. This is a part of what, makes me me and it and it comes from you and it comes from our whole lineage so how are we, how are we going to take it on mm-hmm. it's like it just makes me think of the fact that you know a lot of south asian societies also focus on all of the different identities that you have to that you have to conform to but like why can't we take that and turn it on its head and say okay yeah i have all of these identities these are all of the things that are defining me based on what everyone else says why don't i use this to interrogate that more you know why don't we take what is you know we can take something bad and like use it to to move forward um i don't know it's a cool way to kind of think about like you know we have a very identity centered culture um, identity, you know, like social identity, centered culture. Why, mm-hmm. why can't we perceived identity, right? Yeah, kind of like just like turn that towards interrogation and um, mm-hmm. d- deepening our understanding. Mm-hmm. Use our powers for good, right? Use our privilege mm-hmm. for good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Sonali, you've been such a pleasure and such a joy <laughs> to hang out with. Um, 
I gotta say, also, just like the voice of a goddess. I feel, <laughs> I feel so like comforted and lulled and inspired, really, from this conversation, both the content and the delivery, right? So I really appreciate you taking the time to share your insights with us, both your personal as well as your professional experiences, and just being, as you said yourself, like having the willingness to be vulnerable to be open to be honest and to just to just be like all right this is what's up and like where can we take it from here because that's really it's really what we're trying to do at Sesma and like it with the brown taboo <laughs> project and and all the all the different things that we're involved with right is trying to open up these conversations of our identities mm-hmm. as as people of the diaspora and and what is it um in a multitude of different understandings of identity um, that we want to move forward with here. Thank you so much for having me. Seriously, this was an amazing conversation. I love talking about the complexities of, of growing up in a South Asian family and becoming a South Asian adult. Like the stuff that we dig through and grapple with is so unique. Mm-hmm. And every conversation that we have unlocks different Mm-hmm. memories in my identity so I, I deeply appreciate the opportunity also for me my mind is reeling right now I have so much to think about <laughs> I yeah this has been an extremely enlightening and thought-provoking conversation for me as well so yeah I'm we were we're so glad that you uh, were able to make it today um, thank you so much the yeah. pleasure was all mine did you have anything, Sonali, that you wanted to plug before we wrap up? Anything in terms of upcoming projects or just like where people can reach you at? Anything like that? Totally. So if you are interested in contacting me, if I've said something that piqued your interest or totally offended you, please reach out to me and let me know. And you can get at me through my website. That is SonaliR.com and I'll spell it for you. It's S-O-N-A-L-E-E-R.com. And I have a contact form through the website and you can learn a little bit about how I have become the person that I am and where I was trained and what I kind of specialize in. I am a social worker. I'm a clinical social worker and I am a sex therapist. (laughs) (laughs) Yay, social workers. I have a deep, deep love for social workers. And... I am also enthusiastically known as the fat sex therapist on Instagram. <laughs> it has become a brand and I am owning it. <laughs> <laughs> so you can find me on, on Instagram at the fat sex therapist. I've got workshops coming up in the Jersey and Philadelphia area and webinars. So you can always reach out to me through Instagram. That's the best way to get me. Sweet. And we're going to be sure to link those um, right in the description there. So you'll be able to find those as well um, on our end. So hopefully if you haven't checked it out by now, definitely, definitely, definitely check out our brand new and beautiful website, sasma.org, S-A-S-M-H-A.org. Um, similar to Sonali, we've got um, lots of stuff on there about our journey, about what how we came to be where we're trying to go and we would love to have you there with us um, we've also been circulating a little uh, like google form where people who 
have either any questions, whether that's specifically related to gender identity and sexual orientation, or just like any topic ideas, um, a story that you want to share, a blurb. Um, if you caught us last episode when we were hanging out with our good friend Mudid and talking to him about his experiences with mental health, really anything, we're, we're here to hear it. Um, so drop us a line through there if you have any questions, comments, or even a soundbite um, that you want us to incorporate into upcoming episodes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all so much for joining us. And Sonali, thanks again. It's been a wonderful time and we really hope to have you back sometime. Hopefully, hopefully we can make that happen. It would be an honor and a blessing. Thank you all. Have a good one.